Good morning, church. It's good to see you back, Jeff. I noticed as he pulled in the parking lot this morning, he was driving a Chevy. I guess his experience in Japan impacted him. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. But um, hey, we kicked off our series on Galatians last uh, Sunday, and we titled it Freedom Fighters. And we set that up a little bit last week where we talked about one of the thrusts of the entire book is that Paul is going to be fighting for our freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, today I'm going to read through our, pa- our passage, but the emphasis here is going to be on the origin of Paul. Now, I thought this is good because in our modern day culture, if you're into uh, shows or movies, you know what the origin story is. You know, it's like we made all these movies. Now we don't have any uh, storyline. Let's go back in time and we'll do the origin of this character. You know, this is, I read through this, this is an origin story about Paul and how he came to be the person from being the persecutor of the church to someone who would die for the church. And I picked out one verse. I'm going to read the passage. It says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That is the origin of Paul uh, before he becomes a servant. Now, let's read through this passage. It says, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Father, we just pray today for this message, this passage just read. Even here at the end, we see this transition, this conversion of being the persecutor of the church to one who is now going to defend the church and teach it and feed it. And so I pray, Lord, as we study this, that you would speak to our hearts and Reveal something to us who are here, sitting here today, what it is you want us to learn and how it can shape us, Lord, to serve you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when I was younger, I read a book, one of the first books that really impressed upon me. It was called The Persecutor. And I thought this really fits today. It's it's almost a modern day Paul, a modern day persecutor. And the story is about a man named Sergei Kortikov from Russia. In fact, I've got him on a slide here. In that picture, he's pointing to a map. 
And the spot he's pointing at is the spot where he was on a Russian naval vessel and it was in patrol and he knew the route and this was the closest that that vessel would come to Canada right there. And he planned this whole thing out, how he was going to jump off that ship and swim to shore to freedom. But this is a man, when you read through the book, he epitomized communism. He came up in the Russian orphanages. He tells a story. I remember reading the book where uh, they had all the orphans sitting at a table and they bowed their head like this. And, and the person leading them all said, let's close our eyes now. Now we're all hungry. We haven't eaten in a day. And let's pray to Mother Russia to provide for us. And, and they would pray to Mother Russia to provide food for them and provide. And suddenly, lift your heads up. And there was bread sitting before them. He told the story how they shaped them to, to be believers in Mother Russia. And he came up through this system. Um, crime led into him being selected into service. He was in a police unit of 50 men that he became the leader of. And when they formed this, um, they said to him, you guys are like the brute squad. We're going to send you in when there are bar fights, if there's, if there's trouble in the city, if there's riots. And they were the, the big, strong, like bouncer type guys. They knew judo. They knew how to fight. <clears throat> they were tough guys. And, and so they began their, their uh, mission doing this, but it wasn't before long before they began to shift them over to something new. And that new thing was find all the hidden churches. There are these groups of people, and they're a threat to communism and our well-being. And he, he, I remember reading about the first uh, account where they came, these Christians, it was, it was outside, and, and it was by a river, and they were hiding in the bushes, and as the, they were watching as the Christians gathered, and they sprung out on them. And he said, my surprise was everything that we had ever done was a fight. You know, every, we went to the bar, we went to the street. We always had to deal with tough people and fight. And, and he says, they didn't fight. And so it only took us five minutes. We had every one of them beaten down on the ground, bleeding, with the pastor dead, floating down the river. And he goes on after that to tell about these years of how they served in this capacity. Now, God was going to change him. And he does it in two ways. One, the first, a seed that was planted in him was a, was a young lady named Natasha. And she was beautiful. And he said, we broke into this secret Bible meeting and I saw her. And I, he was always troubled when there were young people because he said, why would young people be attracted to this trash, is what he wrote. And so he was always determined to really stick it to the young people. And so they said, we, we beat her and we taught her a lesson. And he said, I couldn't believe it. Three days later, we broke into another Bible study and there she was. I was so furious, I beat her the worst I'd ever beat anyone. A week later, there she was again. He hauled her down, put her in prison, had an interrogation. I'm going to teach her why this is bad. And the story is that she became this, this lightning rod within, within him. He could not understand why somebody would be attracted to this, this Christianity thing. And the second thing that God used was they often, would, they, well, they would confiscate all the materials, the Bibles, and, and then they would be told, bring them over to here, and they would burn all of them. And somehow in the process of transporting all these religious documents, he ended up with a full copy of the Gospel of Luke. 
And he said, I got to see what it is that they're reading that is attracting them. And he began to read this and he, and he tells the, the exact part where Jesus was teaching someone how to pray and it's how God used these two things. And in the story, he ends up becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And in this moment, what you see is his attempt to try to escape to freedom. I, when I read that book, like this was, this was like Paul, you know, he, he, this is what he did. But before there was Paul, there was Saul, the ravenger of the church. And this lesson is about that origin of him. I titled this the persecutor, the persecutor. That's what he was. So my first point is the origin of Paul's gospel. Last week, we talked a lot about his authority and how he has the authority to deal with false gospels and untruth. Today, we're going to kick off with the origin of Paul's gospel. Let's hear about your gospel. He calls it Paul's gospel. So in verse 11, I will have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor I was taught it. And so out of the gate, he's going to tell you that this gospel message that he has, it's not from humans. It's not from man. It's not human. It's not a human gospel. Now, there's two ways, because he says they didn't receive it from man. And there's two ways that they could have received information of this nature. And the first was the, the Judaizers were the, the, this religious group who were combining Jewish traditions with uh, this Jesus thing. And they would, I talked about this list last week where they're, they're over here and, and we're Christians, but, but we also are holding to the traditions of who we are. And, and the, the, Paul's gospel over there doesn't do that. And so there was this contrast, right? Well, what they would do is they would sit under a teacher, a rabbi, and the rabbi would give to them the traditions. There were a lot of traditions. So it was not only was it scripture like this, but also many traditions. However, that's one way you could have received it. But the most common way, which would be what would, if you were living back then, probably all of you, who were just the, the normal people who lived in society and had jobs. They didn't have the time to go sit under a rabbi like that. They received it um, in open settings like this where they would give to them a the teachings and the traditions. And what they did not have was their own scripture. And so what was not happening was this. The rabbi said this today. Let's, let's look at it here and see if what they said it's true. I was looking through studying for this. <clears throat> One of the writers I was reading said, most of the Jews did not study the actual scriptures. Instead, they used human interpretation of scriptures as their religious authority and guide. Many of their traditions not only were not taught in scripture, but also contradicted it. In fact, in Mark 7, you see Jesus say this. He says, your traditions are making void the gospel. So, but how would you know that if you didn't have the scriptures to look at? Do you see that? Now, in Acts 17, we see this group. This is a good illustration where, where what's talked about is this group of Jews that lived in Berea. They're called the Bereans. You ever heard of the Bereans? What are they famous for? In fact, one of the churches my dad planted was called Berean Baptist Church after this group. And the Bereans, here's what was said about them, Acts 17, 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. 
They receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the good example I'm giving you, this group called the Bereans, here's the pastor teaching, or there's the rabbi teaching, there's the teacher, but we're going to take what's said and we're going to examine the scriptures to see if what's being taught is true. That's why it's so important that you have the word of God. Otherwise, how do you know what's being taught is true? But it says daily, daily they were in the scriptures to see it. Oh, how we need Bereans today. And they were called noblemen. Noble men who examine the scriptures. We need a generation of young people who will be noble men and noble women who will put aside how many hours a day are you on your phone? How many hours a day are you on YouTube? Who will go and be noble men and women and study the scriptures? What do they teach? Because there's so much out there. Is that true? Is that, this is what I heard. Go to God's word and let it be the guide. Now, Paul says, didn't come from man two ways of receiving either way, but he also says he wasn't taught it. And this is important because if it was human in origin, let's say he sits and, and he's being taught like that rabbi and it's coming from man to him, then there's a problem. I mean, it would have been like all other human religions, permeated with works righteousness, born of man's pride and Satan's deception. Now, I don't know about you, but if you ever talk to people of other faith or other, other religions. I, I, I used to, now that I live here, I never get the people that knock on the door. No one ever goes to the parsonage that's from a, a cult, right? They're going to come and knock on your door. But when I used to not live in a parsonage, that would happen to me. And I like to sit and talk uh, with them. And, I, and one of the things that, that it's always going to lead to a question that I will ask, which is this, well, how do I get to heaven? I always like to hear what their response is going to be. Such a, a lot of different responses, but inevitably it's works. If you do this, it's a works-oriented way of saving yourself or making yourself look better in God's eyes so you can be received by him. But Paul writes in Ephesians 2, not 2, 8, 9, we, by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is not by works. And the whole point of Galatians is to get at the fact that the Judaizers were adding to the gospel little things that you had to do. And he's going to fight for our freedom in the gospel. But he says, my gospel doesn't come from man, didn't receive it from him, wasn't taught by man, but it comes from Christ. And he says, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That is different than a dream. That is different than a vision. There was a point in history, the timeline of mankind where Christ in space and time appeared to, that time Saul, now he's Paul, appeared to him and revealed something to him that he didn't know. Now, in, strictly in the sense of theology or in a biblical way of thinking about what is a revelation, a revelation is something that we did not know that was revealed to us. Now, we can't know most things about God. Some we can. I mean, the Bible says the heavens declare the majesty of God. There's a way in which you can look at the universe and see God in it, but there's so much more we can't know unless He reveals. 
When Christ came, it was revealing God in the flesh. Today we have the revelation of God in a word where you can learn and know about God through this. But Paul says, my my gospel came as a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is is important because Paul's doing something here. By saying not man, revelation of Christ, he's essentially saying, and I like this analogy, that there's no gospel headquarters. Sometimes, like right now, there are missions headquarters, right? Like Liebenzell Mission, they have missionaries that are here in Guam. And, and there was a time where I flew all the way to Germany and was at Liebenzell's mission headquarters, right? But there's no gospel headquarters. At this time where, where Paul's writing this, you see, if, if they say, well, he was trained by man. He was at. He went to the apostles. He was trained. There's a headquarters where they. The, that's where they settle everything. And if if that were true, then men could say, "Well, I went to the headquarters too. I was trained there too." You're you're getting Paul's version of what he heard at the headquarters. Let me give you my version. Well, Paul gave you most of what they gave you at, at, the, at the what they give you at the headquarters. But let me give you a little bit more. And there's a way in which he just repudiates that, eliminates it by saying, no, no, straight from Jesus Christ. I mean, who else could even say that? How do you go nose to nose with that? It's the most direct way. This is Paul's gospel. Now, on top of that, the origin of Paul's ministry. How does he go from being persecutor to being who he is from Saul to Paul. And that's what we're going to get in the next few verses. Let me read them again, verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, or how, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. We're getting some of his origin there, his background. And the first thing I put here is that he was a servant of Judaism. Servant of Judaism. He says, my former life was in Judaism. And he describes himself a number of ways in that setting. He says, I was extremely zealous, extremely zealous for the traditions of fathers. Now, there were a lot of traditions called the Halakha. Did I say that right, Steve? Yeah? Okay. Um, And you could be given that. It could be passed to you, these traditions. He was zealous for those traditions. Give them to me. And it says he's advancing in Judaism beyond his peers. It's like if you were to go to a university and give me all the students in this uh, uh, year, freshman, sophomore, whatever, who is the top student there? He was the top of the top. Advancing. In fact, the word advancing in the Greek that he uses, the word, it means to chop to chop ahead, much like you would chop, uh, blaze a trail through a forest, chopping down uh, whatever brush that's in your way. If you've ever been on a, a hike here in Guam and you get off trail, it can be difficult. There was a lot of wild brush. I've been lost once before and there was a lot of sword grass. You can't even move it away with your hands. It cuts your, it cuts your hands. So it's like, where's the machete? And you give it to me, and you're, you're going to blaze the trail, and you're cutting it, and, and they're following you, right? 
That's what it's, it's, he's described as. He was advancing. He was chopping ahead. Whoever was there, like his competition, I'm chopping ahead of them. Chopping them down, getting ahead of them, especially the church. Christians were obstacles to Judaism and his advancement, so he worked to cut them down. And then he uses this line, violent persecution of the church. This is no, I'm going to drop a perceived truth bomb on social media and walk away. Oh, no. Violent. Not just strong words. The intent is on the destruction of the church. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 8, you can read about this. It says Saul was ravaging the church. And it says he was breaking in the doors. He was going house to house. In Acts 8, it says he was dragging people away, putting them into prison, just like Sergi Kordakov. Breaking in doors. You got a Bible study in here. We're going to beat you. We're going to haul you off to prison. A persecutor of God's church. So what happened? The origin story, we're seeing it how he's come up. There he is, advanced, zealous, persecuting. But he becomes a follower of Christ. And right after Acts 8, you get into chapter 9, and we have the conversion of Saul. He's traveling on the Damascus road. He's got uh, travelers with him, and it says that Christ appeared to him the travelers with him, they could hear, but they couldn't see. And as you read the account, Christ says, why? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he falls to the ground. Who are you? I am Jesus. That's the, that word means Savior. That name means Savior. I am Jesus. You're persecuting me. And here's just a fantastic point that I think people overlook. Do you know what he says? Lord, what would you have me do? It says he was trembling and in fear to realize that everything about your life has been against him, the Savior. And he says, Lord, what will you have me do? And that to me is a sign of the conversion of Paul, a giving up of oneself to say, you are my Lord. A lot of times in Christianity, we focus so much on the Savior aspect. He came and He died. He saves us from our sins, but He is also a Lord. And being used by Him for ministry, walking in Christian maturity, we're going to wrestle internally with giving up of ourselves to Him, to submit ourselves to Him. A vast majority of Christians are in a fight inside because they want the Savior, but there's parts of their life where they say, you can't be the boss of that part of my life. So it's so important you have the Word of God, and it's going to guide us, but we may not be like Paul. We may go, well, I don't want to ask, Lord, what would you have me do? Because I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Lord, what would you have me do? A giving over of yourself to Christ. A giving over yourself to the gospel message. And so... In this, what happens? Well, in that moment, he's blind. 
And it says they have, he has to put his hand on those travelers and they take him back and he's at a house. And, and over here, God prepared a man named Ananias and he came to Ananias and he tells him, you're going to go see this guy Saul. And Ananias says, what? Isn't that the guy? He's had a reputation. That's the guy who's killing us. You want me to go to him, right? That's a, what, that should be the normal response, right? What? You're, we're going to go sit down and have dinner with Sergei Kornikov? What? I mean... It's normal. And, and in fact, this is what he's told. And when it says, and when Saul, was, oh, don't let me get ahead of myself because, because here's what happens. He ministers to him. They praise with him. Says something like scales comes off his eyes. And then he baptizes him. The sign that he has put his faith in Jesus Christ. That's why public baptism is important. That guy is following. He, he wasn't he a persecutor. He's been baptized. He's put his faith in Christ now. And, and then what happens is he's excited. He goes down to the synagogue. He wants to preach. But guess what? People are afraid of him. In fact, this is what I was about to read to you. Acts 9, 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. Well, I don't blame him. <laughs> I'd be scared. That's the guy that's killing us. And they had doubt, right? They had doubt. So this is the transitioning that's going on. A reputation for being a persecutor and violent and committed to Judaism. And he's being converted over in the middle here. Here he's going to give his life for Christ and serve the church. But in the middle, the conversion is, Lord, what would you have me do? I'm kind of zealous now. I want to go out and preach a little bit. People are afraid of me. How do we transition to ministry? So I put down here, God called him to this new life. I want to read to you these verses. In verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Let me stop there because there's a lot. There's a lot packed in right there. And the first point that I'm going to give you is that God called him to a new life. He goes from, from this to this because God calls him. That's the very first thing. Why? Because God called him. And in Acts 19.15, I'm going to go back to the Acts. This is, I almost got ahead of myself with Ananias. Because remember, Ananias was like, really, that's the guy? You want me to go to that guy? He's persecuting? And look what, look what was told to him. Look what, was, what Christ said to uh, Ananias. He said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow. Wow. He's a chosen instrument. Now, maybe at your house, nothing, nothing ever breaks. I've got a tool chest thing, you know, something breaks. I look at it. What's it going to take to fix this? I go, I open it up. I have to choose the tool. If I need a Phillips, don't get a, don't get a, a hammer. <laughs> I was, I was going to say flathead, but maybe you can make it work, you know. Don't get a socket set. Like I choose the right tool for the need that I have over here. And when you think of this in terms that God chose him as a tool, as he uses the word instrument for what? To preach to the Gentiles. 
just like there's a specific thing here and I need a specific tool for this thing, you're going to see through this that God chose him for a specific purpose and it is to preach to Gentiles. Now, God called him, but he says this, let me go back to Galatians, but he who had set me apart before I was born. So now you put these things together. So you're saying to me, that before Paul was ever born, God set him apart. I'm going to set, it, set in my mind for my plan. I got a special tool I'm going to use in my plan. It's Paul. Before he's even born, he's earmarked for that. Where were you born? I was born in Joplin, Missouri. Small town, Missouri. What were you earmarked for? What are you set apart for? What kind of tool or instrument are you for God's plan in building his kingdom? You see, for me, it's like I was saved when I was five. There's a whole lot of my life I could talk about. But God brought me to Guam. There's an instrument I want to use for a set period of time in Guam. His name's Kevin Elwell. You're going to preach to the Guam people, the Chamorros, the 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 military, the fill in the blank. We're very diverse, right? You're going to preach to them. I set apart for that. Paul is set apart to preach to the Gentiles, but the setting apart happens before he's even born. Now, called by grace, right? He says, I'm set apart before birth, called by grace. Now, this is, can be tricky, you know, because it's like, People call me. I have a cell phone. And almost always I don't answer it. I don't know why. I, uh, part of it is I, don't, I, I forget. I don't know what setting it's on. I got it on silent or I don't have it with me a lot. But if you, nine, to, nine out of the ten calls I get, I don't answer. You know? And so part of my illustration is God called him and it's not the same. It's not like, well, maybe he'll answer or maybe he won't. Maybe Paul will answer. Maybe he won't answer. No. God called him. He's already set apart for it. He's going to bring about his plan through Paul. And I love this passage in Romans 8. If you're a longtime believer, you know this. You know, Romans 8, for whom he predestined. There's four words here. Predestined. Paul is predestined to be a tool to preach to the Gentiles. Whom he predestined, he what? He called whom he called, he justified. Justified as the gavel came down and said, you are saved. Just like last week, the billion dollars is paid off. That's the, that's the justified. And then he says, here's the last of the four words, glorified. Now, if you don't understand what that means, it should blow your mind because glorified is, it hasn't happened yet. It happens when we are standing in the presence of God in heaven. And all of the words are in past tense. It's like, a, it's like we're going to see the whole work of God in this one sentence in you. You're predestined. You are, you are called. You are justified. And you are glorified. Glorified has not happened yet. And we're seeing this in the life of Paul. God called him by what? By his merit? By his works? By grace. And then he goes on to say, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. That the pleasure is all God's. The pleasure is God's. 
Um, it's like Moses standing before the people in Deuteronomy 7, and he says, the Lord did not set his affection on you because you were more numerous, for you were the fewest, but it was because the Lord loved you. And there's something that you must grasp about salvation, because like I said, all the religions of the world, they're always trying to work their way up to God. Works oriented, it's climb that mountain, and Christianity comes and says, do you realize that God is so high above the mountain, you will never reach him? That what Paul teaches is God comes down and reaches to us to bring us up to him. And it, it says, he's pleasured you who were dead, he made alive. Man is not at the center, God is. And then Paul goes on to say these last two things. He's given a job, pleased to reveal his son to me in order or for the purpose that I might preach. He's got a job for him. That's the, what am I going to do with this tool and where am I going to use it among the Gentiles? He's given a target, the Gentiles. And I, 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 I recycle back the thought. You're an instrument. How is God using you to build his kingdom? And do you realize that like Paul, he thought about how he's going to use you before you're even born? Now, Paul was really opposed to this, wasn't he? First of all, he doesn't even know it. He's just opposed to it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy the church. I'm committed to Judaism, and that is true. That is my truth, even though it's wrong. He's committed to a gospel that's not really a gospel. The gospel message he believes in says you've got to work your way to God. It's not going to work. Righteousness is going to be like filthy rags to him, all your good works. But I want you to think about this thought. All opposition will be seen in the end as having done nothing but further God's design. All opposition will be seen in the end as having done nothing but further God's design. In other words, if it's God's design, opposition ends up becoming part. This is how God can work all things together for good. Paul thinks, I'm opposed I got it. I got my plan. But in the end, I'm going to show you this. His plan actually, God utilized it for something bigger in his kingdom. And I was thinking about a story I heard about C.S. Lewis. Do you know when C.S. Lewis started out, he was an atheist. Now, if you don't know C.S. Lewis, most Christians do. One of the greatest uh, defenders, apologists of the Christian faith in the 20th century. Wrote the Narnia series. He wrote Mere Christianity. He was an atheist. And he studied under uh, a man by the name of Kirkpatrick, who had the nickname The Great Knock. And when C.S. Lewis came into his tutelage, Kirkpatrick, well, he was a furious debater. He was a master of logic, and he was an atheist himself. And he saw the potential in Lewis, and he purposed in himself to create within C.S. Lewis himself another atheist, defender of atheism. But when C.S. Lewis became a believer in Christ, he actually became one of the greatest defenders of Christianity. And there's a way in which the great knock taught him how to debate in the skill of, of 
knowing arguments and logic, and then it flipped around and it became tools that he could use to defend Christianity. Do you see Kirkpatrick, the great knock, in opposition to, to, by being an atheist, to belief in God, in the end just became part of God's plan. He furthered his plan. He furthered his plan with opposition to it. And the Bible is just full of, of stories like this. You think about Joseph and his brothers. His brothers threw him in the pit. And later he ends up second highest man in Pharaoh and saves his family from his position. And he says to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Your opposition to God's plan, he furthered his plan by your opposition. You see that? Jonah, I'm not going to go the way you say. I'm going to go my, my own way. He ends up swallowed by a great fish, gets vomited out, walks into Nineveh to do God's plan anyways. What did that guy look like? Acid, stomach acid stained skin and hair. If he had any, if it wasn't burnt off, he says, listen to me. Everybody went, whoa, is that a ghost? Your opposition to go this way ended up furthering God's plan. And over and over again in the Bible, Daniel thrown in the lion's den ends up being a testimony to Darius the king. Judas, 30 pieces of silver for betraying Christ, ends up putting him on the cross, salvation for mankind. And here we have Saul ravaging the church. Now, let me show you how Saul's opposition furthered his plan. Chapter, chapter um, 8 says he ravaged the church. Chapter 9 He's converted. But in chapter 8 of Acts, one of the things you see is as he persecutes the church, people begin to flee outward like an explosion going outward like this. Get out of the city. You don't want to be in Jerusalem because we're being persecuted by Saul. And up until that point, Jesus said, go into all the world. And the church had stayed in Jerusalem. It didn't go into the world because they were all about the Jews, and it's, this is our thing, and we're going to stay in, in Jerusalem. I'm not moving. Well, God made a move. How? He brought Saul, and Saul persecuted him so fiercely that they fled outward. And as you read about it, as they fled away, they shared Christ. Here's what's going on. Do you know what happened? As they're going away from the center of church universe, now the gospel began to go outward. Saul did it. And then he becomes a defender it goes outward, right? That's like missions. And he becomes the great missionary, the Antioch factor. It used to be church kind of centered in Jerusalem. The work of God becomes centered out of Antioch, like Paul's base of operations for missions, the supporting. Paul becomes the guy. You started the missions by persecuting. Now you're the great missionary. All opposition ends up becoming used by God to further his plan. And you should think about that for what goes on in your heart. As God tries to shape you and conform you with his grace, the fruits of the Spirit to grow them in you, love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. Do those fruits exist? That is Christian maturity. And as we oppose those things, I'm not going to be loving like I should be. I'm not going to be full of grace and forgiving. I'm going to hold grudges. God's going to do a work. That opposition will get flipped. He will break it because he uses opposition to further his plans. Now, 
This is the origin of Paul's ministry, right? We're going to land on our last point, which is the origin of Paul's credibility. Because remember, his, he still doesn't have great credibility. This is the guy that persecuted the church. So we have the origin of his gospel comes from Christ. The origin of his ministry is this, this conversion to this new guy. But the new guy going out is like, no one wants to, who wants to be with him? That, they have doubt, right? I already read you how they responded in Acts. In Acts, it was like, it was, it was like this, is the, this is the guy that persecuted. Ananias is like, you want me to go minister to that guy? How do you then get the credibility to go preach and do the ministry that God wants? And that's what I want to look at in this last point. Let me go ahead and read it to you. Verse 17 says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So what is going on here is he's telling you, he's unfolding to you what happened. He, he, he became a believer. We talked about that. He tried to, to preach a little bit, but then he actually goes away. For, for three years, he goes away. He's in Arabia. And you know what happened there? And why? Why did God do that? And the answer is, it's, it's part of his plan. If you go to Acts and you watch what there's, after Paul kind of, he's there and then he goes away and then God's still working through the apostles in Jerusalem and there's stuff going on with the church. And then later in Acts, Paul comes back and Paul, God uses Paul's time away, both for what he's continuing to do in his church, but also in the life of Paul, how he's going to have him grow. But how does he get the credibility is he's inserting himself back into the public eye for preaching. And what you see is he says, he says, uh, I didn't go to, um, well, before I get to that, because I got to go in order, because there's the cre credibility. Step one, and, and for me, these can all apply to you. Number one, God-centered revelation. This is what we've kind of covered today, that Jesus revealed himself, okay, and it comes from him. And this is the starting point that God begins to do a work in us because he wants to use his instrument for his plan, for his kingdom growth, for the, for the spread of the gospel, for the church, for missions. And, and then for you, I say, what's that look like? And it might be that individual things that we struggle with, we don't want to let go. Lord, what would you have me do? Is that the response that we give or not? That God, that God is going to reveal his word to you. The gospel speaks into every area of our life. And we respond in growth this way. For Paul, I gave it to you. His conversion and him, Lord, what would you have me do? And he's going to become the tool that God needs. Step number two is this solitude and preparation. Working it out as you work it out. And... Paul went away to Arabia. He's not in the public eye. But there's preparation going on. Jesus, baptized, goes into the desert 40 days. Something going on. And there's an aspect where I want to say to you that 
One of the ways God prepares you is solitude. That you have to get away and just be with him in prayer, in his word, to hear and listen. Well, what is it that you're trying to say? Through your word, maybe. What, what direction in my life? And God is, what he does with Paul is not uncommon. And Paul comes back and look what he does. Because the, the third step is community valida- validation. He has to be validated. This was the guy that was persecuting the church. Now, how does it happen? Well, he's giving you what happened. He goes to see certain people. He doesn't go to see all of them. But there's Peter and there's James. Now, those two guys are pillars. Even in Acts, they're, they're called pillars. James was the brother of Jesus, and he was the, one of the main leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Peter is the rock. And here's what happens. He's going to go and, and talk to them. This is my story. This is what happened on the road to Damascus. Jesus revealed himself to me. Now, he's going to see does his gospel message check out with the other pillars of the faith? That's important because God does this in plurality. It's a way that he works. That's a a point I want to make, that there is first accountability in plurality. God does not lead his church through singular leaders. There's a plurality that leads the church. The Bible says the head of the church is Christ. He's the chief shepherd. That literally, that's the title. Like senior pastor, only Christ really has that title. Every other pastor underneath him is an under-shepherd leading the church. And it's supposed to be a plurality. Now, I know there's a lot of different ways churches are set up. But when you read Acts, everywhere they went, they planted churches, they left a plurality, more than one. And there's reasons for that. First of all, there is not one pastor on earth who possesses all of the gifts needed that a church needs. They don't. And you get a diversity of gifts with a plurality that complement one another, which also produces a humility within that plurality. So no one is puffed up and lifted up with pride. There's accountability. Within our eldership, we can keep each other accountable at a leader level. When you have a CEO where no one's around them, it's hard to do that. And it's hard to grow alone like that. Plurality. When I came, we had four elders here. Two, uh, Pancho and um, Joe, uh, left the church and are serving in another church on the island. Tonight, they are celebrating their five-year anniversary as a church. God did a great work with them, but he took two away. He raised up two more. Steve, sitting right here, has been a great uh, asset and tool and instrument helper to me, Andrew, as well over there. Andrew uh, sits with me as a great friend through a lot of hard things. And Jeff, I forgot to say Jeff in the first service, and someone said, is Jeff still an elder? Yes, he's still an elder. I would have to scrape his name off the foundation, you know? It's like, just kidding. He's been here forever. Jeff's one of my best friends on this island. And it's such a joy to serve with them, but the accountability is so helpful and the nurturing and shouldering things together. Accountability. Paul's going to come, and does my gospel check out 
with yours. He doesn't go to all of them. He goes to the, to the, to the top. And there's an accountability there, but then there's also unity. There's also unity. You know, the reputation that Paul has, even after he goes through all these steps, he says, out there in the public, it's still being said, he's the one that persecuted the church. But imagine, Peter could say, I met with him. James can say, I met with him. His gospel checks out, and you begin to reverse engineer the reputation that's out there. Oh, I know Peter, and he says he met with him, and you begin to give credibility also, it's a method as well. Now, Paul, Paul could stand on his own. You know, it didn't come from man. He's a powerful preacher. He could stand on his own. But it's a model God's showing us for leadership in the church. And the leadership should have plurality. It should have accountability. And it should have unity. Now, I'm going to land this thing. And I have three thoughts here. Here's my last one. <clears throat> I want you to consider how much of Paul's origin story is yours. How much of his story is really your story? You know, for me, I, I don't remember a lot of my pre-saved days. I was five. I've been in the church forever. And I used to say to my dad, I had such a boring testimony. And he said, no, your testimony is that he saved you from bad testimony. I've heard a guy get up and say, I was running drugs in a motorcycle gang over the Mexican border. Like, wow, I want to hear your testimony. Who wants to hear mine? You know, and then I remember my dad saying to me once, but your testimony is that God saved you from that. And your testimony, which is something that, that kind of hit me when he was visiting, is that I never had to stand up in a church and say, I don't no longer believe what this church teaches and can't teach you anymore. I never had to do that because my dad gave me good theology growing up. But that is part of my story leading up to today, preaching. There were times in my life, like I wasn't in Arabia, but I was doing something else, and he was building into me the skill sets and the, and the, and the knowledge to be a pastor here. When I was a college coach, five seasons of college men and women, and a lot of my coaching really was like pastoring. They're 20-year-olds. They're falling in love. They got issues, and you end up counseling all the time. A lot of great counseling practice there. And then, I, I don't know how many years, six, seven years, I was, I'm a, a high school teacher standing up for six periods, having to teach, not reading. I don't teach like this. Look how I teach. I move around. That's how I taught. I got to practice it for six periods a day for all these years. God was building me as an instrument because one day he says, I want you to go to Guam. And everything I'm sharing with you, it's, it's Paul's story. It's your story. How much of his story is yours and where are you on that? Are you just a tool sitting in the, the tool chest? Or are you being used as an instrument building his kingdom? So, the gospel message for me when I was young, I embraced it, but it continues. I never leave the gospel. The gospel goes with you for the rest of your life because it's always speaking into my life. Kevin, you cannot speak so harshly in that family setting. That's the gospel speaking to me. I don't, it's not just, yes, he died for my sins, and then I walk away from the gospel. It follows me all my life. And even with Paul, there were times with Paul, you know, the reason that he, he had... Um, a thorn in the side was to keep him humble, he says. You know, that, that God is always growing us in his gospel. Now, working out our faith, preparing for a purpose. I kind of gave you that illustration. 
And then lastly, it leads to ministry. I'm so happy to serve here. It's the greatest joy with the friends and the people. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Unless God someday says, I got somewhere else for you to go. But I don't see that happening. Right now, we're working on a 10-year plan. I'm stuck here for a while. You know? But uh, what's yours? What's yours? Where is God leading you? And how, how are you going to be used for His kingdom? I really love seeing the life of Paul. I think testimonies are so powerful. You know, Sergei Kurtikov jumped off that boat and he swam, almost drowned, washed up on the shore. They found him on a Canadian beach. He sought asylum and he found a place in Canada. He practiced his faith. He went down to America, lived in America, wrote books, spoke, went around and and talked about all his experiences, his, the change in his life from being a persecutor of the church to, to now somebody who was a follower of the very one he persecuted. And he used to say, and I read it, if you find me dead one day and it looks like a suicide, it's not me. And one day they found him dead. Because he was revealing what was going on what life was like for Christians in Soviet areas. And they found him. But he gave his life at the end. That, can, that it feels really dark now. <laughs> but you know what? He's in heaven. Amen to that? That God changed him. And he's in heaven. He changed Paul from a persecutor. Paul's in heaven. He's changing you, and you need in your heart to get to that point. Lord, what would you have me do? Father, we just thank you for the gospel. Thank you for powerful testimonies. Testimony of Sergei Kortikov, testimony of Paul. There's so many testimonies that are sitting here in this room tonight. We just give you thanks for that, for your grace. We see in your word that you have a plan, that you're working out your plan, even all the opposition towards your plan you still make it work for you. I pray that we would learn to trust and not sit in so much opposition to you. The, the believers here today, we're not, we're not like Paul persecuting the church, but we still have opposition in our hearts. We still struggle to say, Lord, what would you have me do with issues in our life? So I pray for your grace to continue to work, to shape our hearts, to be strong followers for you that trust in you that don't live for ourselves but live for you. We are tools. We are instruments, part of a plan. Help us to plug in. Help us to give life to your body, to your church. Find ways to do that. Thank you for your grace and your love. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to stand and worship now and it'll lead into our time of communion. Would you stand and